Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. Start with another trivia question that you can use to stump your friends. We all understand the pattern of Philippians 2, where Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place, right? Humiliation, exaltation. We understand that pattern. It's the most common pattern in Scripture. Here's the question. When was the transition? When was the shift from humiliation to exaltation for Jesus? If you asked me that two weeks ago, I would have said, oh, that's easy. Obviously, his resurrection. That's, the, that's when it began. I've learned in studying this, that's wrong. The transition started the moment Jesus died. It was his burial. That's where it began. It was Jesus' burial that began his exaltation. If you think about it, from the moment he died, from that moment on, nothing dishonorable happens to him after that. God immediately vindicates Jesus by tearing the curtain of the temple. The guy in charge of the death squad, uh, uh, the guy in charge on scene, affirms that Jesus is a righteous man and that he's the son of God. And then he's given an honorable honorable burial, which is remarkable because a major component of crucifixion was to prevent that from happening. The whole point of crucifixion was maximum degradation and humiliation, and that didn't end at death. In that culture, if you really wanted to punish somebody, you wouldn't just kill him. You would kill him, and then you would uh, let his body be eaten by dogs or or let him be buried in a place that he despises, which would just punish generations to come of his family, drive him out of their mind. So when the Romans crucified someone, they, they would just usually just leave them up on the cross. Just literally just leave them there as they disintegrated, let their friends watch and their family watch their body decompose and see the birds picking at their eyeballs and all the flesh becomes so rotten it just falls to the ground, becomes food for maggots and filthy scavengers and everything else. They made it illegal to bury crucifixion victims for that reason. Without special permission, you couldn't bury a victim of crucifixion. In the vicinity of Jerusalem, it was a little bit of a political issue to leave bodies overnight, and so they would often throw them into a grave, but it would be a mass, a shallow mass grave, also very degrading. So that's part of the crucifixion process. And yet, as determined as they were to inflict the worst possible punishment and humiliation on Jesus, they humiliated him more than even the other people being crucified. Even so, he ends up with an honorable burial. Why? If the humiliation aspect is so important, not only to Rome, but to God, right? Remember when we were studying the cross? He thought that this is the most important part. More than the physical torment was the humiliation. If the humiliation is so important to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, why didn't all that horrible stuff happen to him after his death, like a normal crucifixion? It almost did. It came really close. Verse 42, we're in Mark 15, verse 42 brings Jesus right to the brink of that fate. Uh, But then at the last minute, things turn. Why? Well, the reason why is because when Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished. And the Father said, that's enough. And he put an end to the dishonor at that moment. Now, we really usually don't give that much attention to Jesus' burial, right? We talk a lot about his death on the cross. We talk a lot about the resurrection, not a lot about the burial. But if you look at how much space all the gospel writers devote to The burial of Christ, that clues us into the fact that this is important. And remember when Paul sums up the whole gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 in one statement? He includes the burial, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. So the burial is important. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Mark's going to tell us exactly what happened, but first... He wants us to know about the man who did it and about the women who saw it, who witnessed it. He starts with the women. Verse 40, Mark 15, 40. Some women were watching from a distance. 
So who are they? Well, they were some of Jesus' most loyal followers. Verse 41 says in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. So that word cared for, that's the word ministered. Same word used for when the angels ministered to Jesus in the wilderness. They took care of him like the angels did. They supported him financially. They made his whole ministry possible. They were long-term followers, going all the way back to his Galilean ministry, verse 41. In Galilee, these women had followed him. And that's remarkable because uh, rabbis did not have female followers. They didn't have female disciples. But Jesus didn't care about cultural taboos when they were in conflict with God's will. And so he had these women. These women were devoted followers. They were uh, there uh, at the crucifixion when the male disciples were in the wind hiding somewhere. Courageous women. And yet... Even these women, courageous as they are, still keeping their distance, verse 40, some women were watching from a distance. That phrase, from a distance, identical phrase for when Peter followed at a distance. Remember after Jesus' arrest? Uh, Apo macrothon, which, uh, macrothon. That phrase comes right out of Psalm 38.11, where the psalmist is describing his abject misery. And part of what's making him so miserable is the fact that none of his friends would have anything to do with them. Psalm 38, 11. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stand off at a distance. That's our phrase. So Mark's quoting that psalm to describe the abandonment of Jesus by his closest friends and family, just like the psalmist, in the moment of his greatest need. So, And that's these women. They're doing it, they're doing it too. They're courageous, but still, they're at a distance. Uh, they're not there at Jesus' side giving him comfort. On the other hand... Sad as it was that they're keeping their distance, at least they're there. Unlike the men, they're close enough where they can see what's going on. And Mark, who normally doesn't name names, tells us a lot about these ladies. He mentions their names three times, for one thing. And not just their names, but their kids' names, where they're from, their relationship to Jesus, and how long they had known Jesus. He gives this whole dossier on these women. You know, usually Mark, he just like, someone standing there did that, like Peter, someone standing there drew his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest, but, uh, servant. But, uh, but here, he gives us all this information. Why? Because all this information is important because of the role they play in the gospel story. Because of what they did. He said, what'd they do? Well, verse 40, some women were watching. Verse 47, they saw, chapter 16, verse 4. When they looked up, they saw, verse 5, they saw. The identity of this one, these women is crucial because they were the witnesses. They're the witnesses. So we can title this first point tonight, the unconventional witnesses. The unconventional witnesses. And I'll explain the unconventional part in just a second. But for now, the point is that these women are serving as eyewitnesses. And so Mark wants us to know who they are. He mentions their names three times, once at the crucifixion, once again at the burial, and then again at the empty tomb. They're witnesses of the three events that God wants us to have absolute rock-solid certainty about. He wants us to have proof of those three things, Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so he goes... They go out of their way to establish the credibility of the witnesses. They didn't have the courage to be at Jesus' side, but at least they come close enough to see what happened. Without these three ladies, we wouldn't have eyewitness accounts of these events, of the crucifixion, burial, and the angel at the empty tomb. Um, for, for most of what Jesus said and did, the gospel writers don't even care about proof. You know, they'll say Jesus did this miracle, and they just say it. They don't. They don't try to prove it. They don't give a, a bunch of evidence. They're more focused on showing the meaning of his actions. But when it comes to his death, burial, and resurrection, they're all about proof. There's a huge emphasis in Scripture on historical proof. And one example of that is all the details Mark gives us about these women. It's important to establish, to publish their names and identify who they are so that people who's reading the Gospel of Mark could go and verify with these women. They could just go check it out with the actual sources who, who were there and saw it. That's why Mark gives all these details. It's important that they establish who they are. It's important that he establish that they knew Jesus well uh, so there's no chance of mistaken identity. You know, He doesn't want just like casual new, new followers that might get, get it wrong. 
It's important to establish that these women cared a lot about Jesus. Uh, you know, because a casual observer might not pay close attention. These are the type of women who would be paying very close attention. You, you know, if you follow a man on a journey as dangerous as this one, all the way from Galilee down to Judea for months and months and months and risk your life and you finance it with all your own money, that's not a casual observer, right? These are women who are invested, they care, they're paying attention. All of this to establish proof of death. And not only do we have these witnesses, but we're going to read in a, in a moment how uh, God created a situation where Pilate conducts an investigation to verify that Jesus was dead. Uh, so God knew people would come along with theories about, oh, maybe Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. And, you know, they just, like some people, they say, well, you know, maybe he swooned. He just, his eyes went closed, and everyone said, oh, he's dead, his eyes are closed. And they, they uh, figured he's dead, and then he just came to and, and walked away. That's ruled out by the testimony of the centurion before Pilate down in verse 45. The centurion, Pilate asks the centurion, he's like, Jesus is already dead, and he tasks the centurion with verifying that. Centurion is a trained killing machine, right? The, very few human beings in history have been more proficient at killing people than a Roman centurion. They weren't, and they weren't idiots. They didn't think people were dead just because they closed their eyes. The Muslim religion is another example. Uh, the people that say that Jesus didn't die, they teach that Jesus survived the crucifixion and there was some kind of body double in the burial. And it wasn't really Jesus. God knew these kinds of things had come up, and so he went way out of his way in the Bible to pro provide proof of death, proof of burial, proof of resurrection, and on with the same witnesses, all, all three. It's kind of sad, if you think about it. It's sad that the men that Jesus chose to be his witnesses to proclaim what happened to the whole world missed it. <laughs> I mean, of all, of all, you'd think, well, they'd be there to see it. Their whole job is to testify that these things happened to the world, and well, they weren't there. That's a pretty big oops. But we can thank God that these women were there so the apostles could at least get information from the women to find out what actually happened. So we have proof. Proof is important to God. God never, ever asks us to believe anything on blind faith. He always provides compelling, abundant proof and gives rock-solid foundations for what he calls us to believe. He provides proof. He provides proof, but... Not always the kind of proof that we would like to have. God says, here's the proof. And, uh, and sometimes we'll say, well, I don't find that compelling. I'm not really persuaded by that evidence. Um, do this other thing. Then I'll be persuaded. And God's response to that is always the same. Like, uh, no. <laughs> he doesn't cater to that. He gives good evidence. And even if it's the evidence we don't find most compelling, he gives good evidence, and he leaves it to us to adjust what we think of as good evidence. Now, I say all that because in this case, female witnesses in that culture, that's excellent evidence, but not in that culture. <laughs> Did you know in that, in that culture women were considered so unreliable? They were not allowed to testify in a court of law. You commit a crime, and the only eyewitnesses are women, you're free to go. You're not going to get convicted. You're off the hook. Uh, they did not regard the testimony of women to be reliable because women were too emotional or whatever. And that's why I titled this first point, Unconventional Witnesses. These are not the kind of witnesses you would expect. And once again, this rules out the idea that the apostles or the early church made this stuff up. If they're making stuff up, one thing you can say for absolute certain, they would never, ever have made the primary witnesses of the most key event women in that culture. Back then, you'd say, hey, guess what? There was a resurrection. Somebody came back from the dead. Well, how do you know? How do you know for sure? Uh, who saw it? A group of emotional women. They'd just say, oh, brother, and walk away, right? Nobody would make that up. But God doesn't accommodate himself to our cultural hang-ups. He just provides proof that's good proof and leaves it to us to adjust our attitudes about what's good proof and what isn't. And you say, well, wait a minute, but that's, 
what if there's people back then that remained unconvinced because God didn't use a form of proof that was more acceptable in that culture? Answer, they miss out on eternal life. That's what you get for buying into dumb cultural attitudes. We need to be careful how we're affected by our culture. So we have these women's names. What are their names? Well, as, as usual, the first in the list is Mary Magdalene. Luke 8.2 says Jesus drove seven demons out of her, and she became a very key disciple, very important person. Uh, all four gospel writers mention her as really the chief witness of the events of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Next was another Mary, verse 40. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. This is probably Jesus' mother, because Mark already told us his brothers are James and Joseph, and his mother is Mary. So this is a woman who really knew who Jesus was. I don't think his mother would have been fooled by a body double, right? And definitely had a high, high degree of interest in the matter. The third woman was Salome. Uh, Matthew tells us she's the mother of the two apostles, James and John, which means she's the one that asked to give her sons the right and left positions in glory and all that. She's very invested too. These women witnessed the death of Jesus. They witnessed his burial as well. So let's move on to his burial. It's what, what happened. If one of the main purposes, back to this question, if one of the main purposes of crucifixion is to denigrate the person both in life and in death and in burial, why did that not happen to Jesus? It, just stop for a second and think about what a miracle that was. The Roman Empire makes a decision that a man is going to be disgraced in his death, and the ruling powers of Jerusalem are united in that decision. They agree. And, and so you get the Roman Empire, the nation of Israel, joining forces to denigrate the body of one man that they just executed. And it's about to happen. The sun sets, and it happens. It's, it's going to happen. Because they can't do anything once the sun sets, uh, because it'll be Sabbath. And it's getting real close to that. The sun's getting real close to the horizon. It looks hopeless. Jesus is still on the cross. That sun's about to set. When it sets, it's over. So what stopped it? Who stepped in? The disciples? No. The women? No, they're, they're cowards too at this point. It was the last person, person you would ever imagine stepping forward. You know, last time when we in our last study, we saw the awesome power of the cross claim just about the most unlikely candidate you can imagine, the centurion in charge of the death squad killing Jesus. You wouldn't expect that one, right? Nobody saw that coming. I say just about the most unlikely because what we're going to see here is an even more unlikely candidate. Uh, we've, seen some, we've seen the unconventional witnesses. Now let's look, we'll title this section the unlikely hero. The unlikely hero. If there's one person that you would say is even less likely to be won over to Jesus' side than the leader of the death squad, it would be this man. And yet, at the last second, he steps forward in heroic courage and prevents Jesus' body from being desecrated. You can think of this, I think you can think of this closing paragraph of Mark 15 as the sequel to the parable of the vineyard. Remember the parable of the vineyard? Jesus told the story about the, the owner kept sending all his servants to the vineyard, the tenants, and they kept killing them and beating them and everything. And then finally he says, I'll send my son. And they, he sends his son, and what do they do? They kill him too and throw his body outside the, gate, the walls. That's how that parable ends. Here we get the sequel. In the sequel... Just before a pack of dogs comes and devours that body of the sun, an unlikely hero emerges, drives the dogs away, honors the sun with an elaborate, honorable burial. You say, well, who's, who's this guy that appears out of nowhere and drives away the dogs? And the camera zooms in, and you find out it's one of those tenants. It's one of the tenants. 
Verse 43, Mark 15, 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council. The council, that's the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish Supreme Court that just sentenced Jesus to death and turned him over to the Romans. Now, there are plenty of really bad guys in Mark's gospel. No one is worse than these people, right? In the gospel of Mark, nobody's worse than the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests, teachers of the law, the religious officials, constantly opposing Jesus, constantly against him, and, and they're the worst of the worst in Mark. We saw every other category of mankind implicated, all the categories of mankind were implicated in Jesus' death, right? All of them. But no one as bad as the Jewish Sanhedrin. They were the most intentional, the most vicious, the strongest driving force in the murder of Jesus. They were horrible. The gospel from the beginning of the pages of Mark, has extended hope for hardened sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, Roman soldiers, pagan foreigners, even people controlled and dominated by demons. But up to this point, there's almost nothing but condemnation for these men. You don't see a lot of hope for the Jewish religious leadership in Mark. They were the rich, proud, self-righteous hypocrites. And now you've got a member of that council, a prominent member of that council showing up. That's like Darth Vader appearing on the scene, right? But amazingly, he's a good guy. Luke, now Luke just comes right, right out and says that. He's a good and righteous man. Mark's, listen to how Mark says that same thing. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself, now here's how he says he's a righteous man, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. What an interesting way of telling us that he's godly. He's waiting for the kingdom. Waiting refers to eager expectation. He can't wait for the kingdom. You say, well, hold on a second. Weren't all the Jews waiting for the kingdom of God? I mean, wasn't the whole nation of Israel waiting for the kingdom? They were waiting for their idea of the kingdom. Uh, this is another one of those little life, big life things. They were eagerly anticipating their little kingdom. They were eagerly anticipating their idea, which was basically uh, what they already had minus Rome. That was their idea of the kingdom. And maybe a little more prosperity. Whatever was needed to you know, fix up this life the way they wanted it. That's the kingdom. That's what they're waiting for. That's a lot different from what Jesus had said all the way through this gospel. Remember, when Jesus preached, he only preached about the kingdom of God. All the way through the gospel, he's been talking about it. And he taught us to say, our Father, your kingdom come. Pray for that. When he was saying that, that's a lot different than their ideas of the little kingdom. Or what the people were shouting at the triumphal entry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Jesus preached about God's kingdom, the big eternal kingdom where the, the, the next world breaks into this world. It's the kingdom Jesus described in the parables of the kingdom where all in chapter 4 where all the people um, are at peace with God and live according to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the kingdom. Joseph was waiting for that. He was waiting for everything Jesus preached to come to fruition. That's what it means that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom. Mark's not going to use the kingdom of God here differently than he's used at the whole gospel. He's talking about the same thing. That's what Joseph was waiting for. That's what made him a godly man. So let's just let's watch how this unfolded here. We get the setup in verse 42. And the very first word puts us into a time crunch. The literal translation of verse 42 is, and already evening having approached. Evening refers, refers to sundown. Now remember, I told you last time in the Q&A, Mark divides the crucifixion day into four equal segments, like a ball game. Four quarters um, in the NFL. Quarters are 15 minutes each. Minutes each in Crucifixion Day. Mark's quarters are three hours each. First quarter was everything that happened before they nailed him to the cross. Second quarter, first three hours on the cross when everybody's mocking Jesus. Third quarter was next three hours on the cross. There was all darkness. And then at the end of the third quarter, Jesus dies. And the fourth quarter is what happened to his body. But Mark begins the fourth quarter, this, this segment of the day, 
by telling us the fourth quarter is almost over. Okay, that's the storyteller Mark says, okay, end of the fourth quarter. It's just about the clock's running out. And that's a problem, like I said, for the Jews, because sundown marks the beginning of the next day for the Jews. Not for us, it's midnight for some reason, but for them, it's as soon as the sun goes down, starts the next day. Which would be the Sabbath, which means you can't do any work, which means you can't bury a body. You can't do all any of the work involved burying a body. And waiting until after the Sabbath was over to the following day, that's not an option because you can't leave a corpse out overnight. Deuteronomy 21, 22. If a man guilty of a capital offense, I mean, even if he's a criminal, is put to death and his body's hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance by leaving a body up overnight. There was a time in David's reign when uh, God stopped answering the people's prayers because of this, because there had been some bodies that hadn't been buried. So David figured that out, gave them a proper burial, and then God started answering their prayers again, 2 Samuel 21. Uh, so you can't leave it overnight Sun's about to set. It's almost the end of the fourth quarter. If he's left up there, uh, there as soon as that sun goes down, that not only is that body going to be desecrated, but the land is going to be desecrated. Right? The whole land is going to be under a curse. If they take his body down and throw it in a shallow grave, that's a problem for us. That for the proving the resurrection, right? It's going to be a little tr tricky to prove. If he's just thrown in there with a bunch of other bodies, people just assume, oh well. Disciples came and stole the body. So, so we have this time crunch. We're almost out of time. But why is that the case? Why are we at the end of the fourth quarter and nothing's been done? He's been dead since 3 o'clock. Why hasn't some, somebody from his family or friends approached Pilate and asked permission to, uh, to do something about the body? Well, because... <laughs> It wasn't, un, it wasn't unheard of for that kind of permission to be granted, but for somebody who was just killed for insurrection, that's a little dangerous. To identify yourself with an insurrection, someone who was just executed for insurrectionist, you're going to be a sympathizer. And that could land you in jail, or worse. So no one close to Jesus had the courage, not his brothers, not his mom, not his family, not, not his friends, not the disciples, nobody. For all those hours, from 3 o'clock on. And now, when it's getting toward, right towards the end, one man steps forward, has the courage, and he steps forward. Verse 42, And already, evening having approached, since it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Yeah, it can be translated, Joseph dared to ask for the body, or he summoned courage to ask for the body. It implies a lot of danger here. Unlike the apostles and Jesus' family and the women, this man steps forward with great courage. And he goes right to Pilate. And not only is he risking that, being branded as a sympathizer with, by the Romans, but think about what he's going to face from his own colleagues in, on the council and the, and the Sanhedrin. I mean, what do you think they're going to think about this? You know how much they hated Jesus. They already decreed, uh, it, Mark, uh, John 9.22 tells us they had already made a law. Anybody sympathizes, anyone who says Jesus is the Christ, excommunicated, put out of the synagogue. So he's risking everything, his career, his standing, his prominence, his life. And all that danger had, honestly, had intimidated Joseph up to this point. If you're wondering why we never heard about Joseph before this, here's why. John 19.38, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, secretly, because he feared the Jews. He was afraid of them. He's afraid of his colleagues. He was a coward. And he was a coward, according to John 12, because he loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's what kept him quiet. He didn't agree to the sentencing of Jesus. He, he either voted no or he wasn't at that meeting or whatever. He didn't agree to that. But he, was, he kept his 
allegiance to Jesus a secret up to now. And remember, that's pretty bad. Jesus said, anybody's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him at the second coming. But once Jesus dies, after his death, Joseph's cowardice gives way to courage. More courage than the bravest and best of all Jesus' followers. And he had some pretty strong followers. Joseph is another example of the transforming power of the cross, just like the centurion. First we had the Roman centurion, now we have this member of the Sanhedrin. God is capturing the hearts of the last people you would ever imagine, one by one. He gives new life to a pagan, then he gives courage to a cowardly secret disciple. In John 12, 32, Jesus said, But I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. That's the power of the cross. That's what we're seeing here. So Joseph was rich, he was prestigious, and he was powerful. And, that, and like I said, that's what makes him so unlikely. What does the Bible usually say about people in those categories? The rich, the prestigious, the powerful. The Bible doesn't have a lot of great stuff to say about those people, right? Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for one of those people to ever go to heaven. Jesus said that the prestigious people who are highly honored in this world will be the last in the kingdom, right? Whoever's first in this world, last in the kingdom. Jesus pronounced all kinds of curses on the political powers of Israel. Joseph is in all three of those categories, rich, prestigious, and powerful. He's in all three of those categories, but the thing is, the issue with God is never your category. And this is one reason why Marxism and critical theory are so unbiblical. And if you're not familiar with critical theory, the popular term for it now is wokeness. And the, the main idea between critical theory or wokeness or Marxism is that everyone should be treated one way or the other based on their category, not based on their individual situation. If you're a member of an oppressed category, you're oppressed, and you should be treated as oppressed. Even if in your individual situation, nothing ever happens to you that's oppressive. And if you're in the category of the oppressor, then you're the bad guy, you should be treated as such, even if you never oppressed a flea. It's all about your category, not about your individual situation. That's the driving primary idea behind wokeness, uh, critical theory. And it's an essential component of Marxism. And I bring all that up not to get to pol political, but to get theological. Because I want to show how antithetical that is to what we see here about the kingdom of God. In the Bible, rich, prestigious, powerful people are usually in the category of the bad guys, the evil oppressors. And in the Gospels, the members of the Sanhedrin are the worst category that there is. And Joseph is in all those categories, and yet he's shown here to be a good guy, even better than the best of the apostles. God usually uses the poor and the oppressed and the people on the bottom instead of the rich and prominent and powerful. But God has uses for rich, prominent, powerful people too. In this case, the fact that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin helped it may have been the reason that got Pilate to agree to give him the body. And if he hadn't been rich, he probably wouldn't have had access to this, this stone tomb that could be secured right away. Joseph was in a good position to do this. He might have had the same realization that Esther had, that God had placed him in a strategic position for such a time as this, a moment like this where someone like him was needed. Sometimes people have assumed that God, I've, I, there are theologians that have written, God has a bias in favor of the poor. That's not true. Every person stands before God as an individual, not as a member of a class. Your, you, your categories do not define you in God's eyes. Only your heart does. And and so we should resist every trace of wokeness, Marxist influences that are being pushed so hard in our culture because they're injustice, and God hates injustice. Okay, so uh, we have seen, and their, their favoritism too. Anyway, so we've, we've seen the unconventional witnesses, the unlikely hero, 
And now let's look at the actual burial, see what happens. And we can call this point the unexpected reversal. Unexpected reversal. Instead of being picked apart by the unclean animals, thrown in a mass grave with the criminals, here's what happens. Verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So he's standing outside Pilate's office, back to the wall, waiting to get called in, takes a deep breath, closes his eyes, tries to steady the shaking of his hands. As soon as he closes his eyes, those gruesome images of Jesus being flogged flash into his mind and startles his eyes back open. Sweat drips down his face, tries to stop trembling. He knows these could be the last moments of freedom for him or the last moments of life for him. A soldier motions for him to enter the room. He breathes a quick prayer for strength and turns and steps in before the governor. Your Excellency, it's almost sundown. As you know, if Jesus' body is left up overnight, the whole land will be under God's curse. Allow your servant to dispose of his body. Pilate gets up, walks towards him. Joseph braces himself for a barrage of questions about his motives, or are you here representing the Sanhedrin, or, or what are your plans for the body? Or what? Instead, Pilate walks right past and turns to a soldier. He's dead? Soldier nods. Bring me the centurion. Verse 44, Pilate was so amazed. He was amazed to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. So now this is the man who stood directly at, in front of the cross. Remember, facing Jesus, looking at him. And he was so moved by the way Jesus breathed his last that it convinced him that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. That man is now being questioned about whether Jesus was dead. The one who saw a death happen that changed his whole heart forever is now being questioned. Now, of course, his, the centurion's life would be on the line if he gave a false report at this point, but there's no need for that. I assure you, sir, he is quite dead. We, we even put a spear through his heart to make sure. He's been dead for some time now. Verse 45, when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the corpse to Joseph. So, with a wave of Pilate's hand, Joseph takes his exit. Outside the palace, he's got his whole staff, several friends, waiting, along with another member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. We learn that from other Gospels. We have permission. we got to move fast. Go. I'm sure they all had their assigned task. Nicodemus takes care of buying the aloes and the myrrh for anointing the body. Verse 46, Joseph bought some linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and placed him in a tomb cut out of rock. So they go to this crucifixion scene. They take the cross down slowly, carefully. Requires a few tools to get his wrists and feet off of those spikes, but they're careful. They carry the body down to a creek, take some scrubbing to get the body clean. They dab him and dry him and begin meticulously wrapping his body with the linen. They have enough spices and oils to keep the smell under control for several weeks. A few times, Joseph has to pause. Tears overtake him. This all seems so final. Verse 46, Joseph wrapped him in the linen and placed him in a tomb cut out of rock. The wealthy buried their dead in caves, sometimes very large ones, shelves, could handle 10, 20 bodies, maybe more. Isaiah 53, 9 says he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Figure that one out for the original readers. <laughs> What is that? 
According to John 19.39, Nicodemus brought, bought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to anoint Jesus' body. This is a major splurge. These are not men that were expecting a resurrection in a couple days. Every detail of Jesus' burial, though, showed the utmost honor. That's the point of all this. Extravagant embalming, cared for by rich, prominent, powerful, prestigious men. And Acts 2 points out that God even timed the resurrection such that it, to make sure that Jesus' body didn't even undergo the indignity of the beginnings of decay. The shame is over. And God sees to it that his son is laid into the ground with honor. Verse 46, then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. I don't know how many memorial services you've been to. I've been to quite a few. There's one that stands out in my memory. I'll never forget it. It was 40 years ago, 1983. My cousin Kenny, whom I idolized at the time, died at age 22. I was 16. And the thing I remember was at the wake, standing there at the wake for the longest time, just looking at his face in the coffin. I couldn't take my eyes off. And someone noticed that and came up alongside me and I just said, I can't, I can't believe it's him. I can't believe this is Kenny. And this person tried to comfort me by saying, it's not him. He's in heaven. This is just his body. That had an impact on me. That's an attitude I've carried with me ever since, all these 40 years. Once you're dead, eh, your body's re relatively eh, insignificant, irrelevant until the resurrection. Once your spirit goes up into heaven, your body, it's just a blob of matter. Nothing more. You're not there. You're up in heaven. But if that's the case, why did it matter what happened to Jesus' corpse? Clearly it mattered, right? Jesus' body was not just a meaningless blob of matter. I mean, look at verse 36. In verse 43, it says, Joseph asked for the body. In verse 45, it says, Pilate gave Joseph the corpse. But both of those words, body and corpse, are in the neuter gender in the Greek, which means the appropriate pronoun for them would be it. So in verse 46, when Joseph takes the corpse down, the proper grammar would be, so Joseph bought some linen cloth and took it down, took the body down, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb. But that's not what Mark says. Instead, he uses the masculine pronoun each time, even though that doesn't match the word body or corpse. So verse 46, so Joseph took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and placed him in a tomb. He doesn't refer to the corpse as an it, but as a him. Pagans very often burn the bodies of loved ones, because they believe that uh, the spirit is trapped inside the body. The spirit is good, the body is bad. It's trapped in the body. Once you die, you burn that body, get rid of the bad part, free the spirit to go in a into a much better condition. That's the pagan attitude. The biblical model is always burial. From the very early pages of Scripture, even when God takes care of Moses' body, he buries it. It's always burial. Because the Christian model is that the body is good. It's part of the image of God. God made us unified beings. And yes, at death, there is a separation of body and spirit, but that separation is a tear on a seamless garment. And it's temporary. It, we, we won't be whole again until the resurrection. When I was standing there at that wake looking at Kenny, I was looking at Kenny. That was him. Even though his spirit wasn't there, Body is still Kenny's body. And the honor that was being shown to him by all that that we were doing that day was appropriate. When the women came to the empty tomb looking for Jesus, and what did the angel say? He's not here. He's risen, right? But when they were preparing Jesus' body for burial, there was no angel showing up saying, Why are you wasting spices? He's not here. He's in paradise. Jesus was in paradise, but honoring his body was absolutely the right thing to do to honor him. 
So Joseph and his guys get that stone in place, get Jesus in there, get the stone, stone sealing it up, blocking it, just in time before that sun sets. Joseph turns around, leans against the rock wall to catch his breath. And guess who he sees standing right there watching? Verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. These women, it's like they don't want to let Jesus out of their sight. They witness his death, now they witness his burial. And that's important because millions of us right now, right, are banking on the fact that these women didn't go to the wrong tomb on Sunday morning, right? It's important that they knew which tomb to go to. No chance they went to the wrong tomb. They're there. They're seeing this. All right, so the main purpose of this passage is to establish the credibility of the witnesses of the death and burial of Christ and to show how the father honored his son in his burial. That's the main purpose, but I think there's one other purpose. All four Gospels not only mention Joseph, but tell us a lot of details about him. God wants our attention on this man um, and what he was like. And I'm convinced that's because he wants us to be inspired to follow in his example. No matter who you are, the power of the cross can change everything. Joseph went from the worst of the disciples to the best. And Mark's only explanation for what had the power to do that was he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And so that's the question, obviously, he wants us to ask ourselves. Are you waiting for the kingdom of God, like Joseph? Are you waiting for the kingdom of God? Pilate certainly wasn't. Uh, he, Pilate's a good contrast with Joseph in this passage. Because remember back in 44 when it says Pilate was amazed? That word amazed is the same word we've, keep, we've seen all the way through this gospel for how amazed the crowds were when Jesus did his miracles. And it's always been an inadequate response to Jesus, right? We've seen that. People saw Jesus' miracles, like, wow, that's amazing. And then, uh, what are we doing for dinner? And they just were like on with their life. It didn't change them. And that's Pilate. That's Pilate. Pilate should have been amazed and responded like the centurion or Joseph. Instead, he just, he's amazed, shrugs his shoulders, gets on with his life. A lot of people claim to be searching for the truth, but they have no intention of actually finding it. Right? They just or committing to it once they find it. They just like searching. They pride themselves on being on an intellectual journey. But it, it's a journey that never arrives anywhere, right? They just, what do you believe? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm still searching. I'm still, you know, I'm searching. And they, they entertain all kinds of ideas and everything, but they have no interest in actually ever coming to any conclusion because you, if you never land anywhere, then you never have to live anywhere, right? You don't have to commit to anything. And people like that, will come across the truth and just walk right past it, not even noticing it, just, just like Pilate. But not Joseph. Joseph was truly, genuinely waiting for the actual kingdom of God, however God defined it. And so when Jesus came along, he's like, there it is. There it is. I found the kingdom of God. He looked at Jesus' mutilated corpse, and with eyes to see, he said, now there's a king. One mark of someone who's truly waiting for the kingdom of God is that when they find it, they'll embrace it. When it shows up, even in a form totally different than anything they ever dreamed or expected, they'll still embrace it and commit to it, because they really are looking for it. And what does embracing it look like? Well, it looks like risking your career, your reputation, and even your life, if necessary, to simply show honor to the king of this kingdom. If you're waiting for the kingdom of God, the king's honor means everything to you. It means more to you than your own honor. It means more to you than anything in this life, including life itself. You would risk everything just to show one last honor to his dead body if it came to that. And if that sounds hard in the moment... I'll just leave it up to your own imagination to consider what kind of reward God the Father must be lavishing right now on the man 
who risked everything to show his son an honorable burial. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this man. We thank you for what you did in snatching this centurion and this, this member of the council from the fire and changing them, um, taking them for yourself, and for doing that same thing to us in our hearts, showing us the truth. Father, may we, may we live lives worthy of that. Teach us more and more what it means to be waiting for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of the King himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Questions? Yeah, so, yeah, question is, why doesn't, why wouldn't Mark just come around and say, it was Jesus' mother? That would make it a little simpler. And for the fact that he doesn't is, for that reason, a lot of scholars and commentators say, that ah, couldn't have been his mother. If it was his mother, he for sure would have said that. But I'm not so sure. Um, if you look back at the earlier references to Mary and Mark, the, the, the primary one is in, in chapter uh, 3, where Jesus distances himself from that human relationship, or that family relationship with his mother. Uh, he's, she, she comes, she thinks he's insane. He, she comes, they say, Jesus, your mother's outside looking for you. And Jesus said, who is my mother? And he says, my mother and brother and sisters are those who do the will of God. And so he kind of ends that blood relationship as being significant and points to the, what's really significant is spiritual family, my new spiritual family. So Jesus has already downplayed that relationship. And so it, it, it wouldn't be surprising to me for Mark to avoid making a point of that family relationship here as if it were significant and meaningful. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't see it as a problem. Um, what I would see as a problem is if it's not Jesus' mother, it seems to me like quite a coincidence that at the crucifixion and burial and resurrection, one of the main witnesses, it's, repeat, it's mentioned over and over, is a woman that happens to have the same name as Jesus' mother, and her sons happen to have the same names as Jesus' brothers, and Mark mentioned the name of his mother and his brothers earlier in the gospel, and now he mentions these names of these sons and the woman, and doesn't expect us to draw any connection between the two. That, to me, seems more unlikely than that Mark would avoid saying Jesus' mother because Jesus has already deprecated that relationship. Looking at both options, I just see the more tenable one is this is Mark expects us, especially with all the way through the crucifixion, he, he's using words so carefully to tie back to when he used those words earlier in the gospel. And he keeps doing that, keeps doing that. So if he were here and he just said, well, this woman, same name as Jesus' mother, her kids are the same name as Jesus' brother's, Total coincidence, though. Don't draw. I mean, it seems to me he would have to go out of the way and say that if he doesn't want us to make that connection. But we already know that Jesus' mother was there, right? Because he told John. Jesus' mother was at the scene, right? So you can picture her talking to this other Mary, say, "We got the same name. Our kids have the same names. What are the odds?" Yeah, and yeah, that's another thing is. The reason for Jesus, or for Mark to mention these names is because they were known, right? Um, that's another thing some of the scholars will say, well, why didn't he mention Jesus' other brothers? Because Jesus had four brothers that are mentioned before, and now he only mentions two here. Well, maybe the, these two are the ones that were known to Mark's readers who could go, that they could go and talk to them and verify this, and the other two weren't known to them in the Church of Rome. Um, yeah, or maybe they were, the other two weren't even there. Uh, well, it doesn't say any of them were there. It just says uh, that that's who Mary was. He's, he's trying to identify Mary. And so he says, oh, Mary, you know, the mother of these two guys. And they're like, oh, I know those two guys. So, uh, you know, um, that's what, um, that's the point of mentioning the sons. So um, we know that jo James 
Jesus' brother James was very well known in the early church. And so if you say mother, Mary, the mother of James, that's who you can go. If you want to verify this, you know James, right? Her, his mother. Well, everybody would think, well, James, he's like the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the whole first half of the book of Acts. And so if it's some other James, again, you would expect that to be clarified. No, not that James, not famous James. Next to famous James, you know. Yeah, I don't see Mark looking at the later published copies of his gospel saying, ah, oh, I should have clarified. That's not the same. No. I'm rethinking, though. Should, should we not do cremation? I'm, I, I, honestly, all my life I've told my family, look, when I die, cremation. Don't waste a bunch of money. The last thing you need to do is waste money at that point. And I see what these funeral homes do with bilking people out of thousands and thousands of dollars for you know, using their sorrow to get tons of money out of them so they buy the most expensive coffin and everything. And it's always irritated me, and so I've always been a big proponent of cremation. I'm rethinking that. I'm really rethinking that. After this study, I'm thinking, man, that's... Uh, well, is there any reason to honor our bodies? I mean, our bodies are nothing. Yeah, but all the way through Scripture, like I, I mentioned, God buried Moses' body. Um, he buried it and uh, didn't burn it. And you see the emphasis on honorable burials and even that that passage in in um, Samuel with, under David's reign where there's a curse on the land until they got those bones and came and buried them, you know. It just seems like a lot of emphasis on burial. And, uh, and so I don't know. I would never point to someone and say, you do cremation, that's wrong. It's wrong to cremate. I would never say that. But I'm honestly leaning more now towards... Uh, for my family, I'm thinking maybe um, burial. And if there is, and if, you know, for financial reasons you have to do cremation, to still do it in an honorable way. I think, you know, we, if we cre do cremation, we're not necessarily engaging in paganism because we're, we're not doing it because we're trying to free the spirit from a bad physical tomb that it's encased in. Uh, so, you know, it's not the same. Uh, so if somebody did have that motive, then I would say, yeah, that's definitely wrong. But if they're just doing it to save money and be good stewards of money, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that's wrong. But I, th I think you can still do some things to honor the person, right, and honor their body. So even in our tradition, even with cremation, I remember one of my relatives was cremated. I think it was my uh, grandma or something like that. And uh, they put the ashes, or maybe my grandpa, anyway, they put the ashes in this really fancy box. And I had never seen any of that before. I didn't know what it was. I was walking through the church, and I saw that box. I was like, oh, that's a really cool box. And I, I almost picked it up and just started, like, messing around with it. And then I'm glad I didn't, because I found out later all oh, the ashes were in there. Um, but uh, if we, you know, do things like that to show honor, and then keep the box away from kids, you know, and stuff. Uh, um, then, then you know, maybe you can make an argument that's yeah, we're still doing the same thing that's accomplished in burial, and maybe even bury the box. I don't know. Scattered. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I was thinking is if I did, if I did, if we did do end up doing cremation, I I think I'd bury the box. I, I remember there was uh, the first pastor, one of the youth pastors, the first first pastor I was served under. He, he, um, somebody died, and he just put the body in his trunk. And, you know, the, the funeral home charges thousands of dollars just to transport the body. He said, that's ridiculous. These people don't have thousands of dollars. He just put the body in his trunk and took it, you know. I think it's good, I think it's good that they saved them all that money, but it doesn't seem super honorable, but, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's no problem for God to raise anybody from the dead, whether whatever happens to it. Uh, the, the, if people are burned in a fire or in a nuclear blast or die at sea or something, that's that's not that's not an issue because that's not some that's not us showing any certain attitude because we didn't cause that to happen. But if we do cause it to be burned, 
that's where we need to ask ourselves, are we showing proper respect for the body? And I, I, I think it's a conscience issue between the individual and God. Yeah, it's not. The, the point of burial isn't to preserve. Um, the, that's the thing, you know, when they, they say, oh, if you get this casket, it'll last 100 more years than this other casket. I'm not concerned about that. Um, but, uh, but it's just the, the honor aspect. <laughs> they burn him the first time, and then they dug him up and burn him again. Yeah. But that shows that what you do with someone's remains is showing something about your attitude for the truth. Thank you for listening. We pray these principles from the Word of God are helping you find the peace of God as you draw near to the God of peace. Please remember to pray for this ministry, and remember that we're a crowd-funded ministry, so every gift helps. Just go to treasuringgod.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always, and set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.